Anybody in the room enjoy running? Yeah, some of you enjoy running. How many of you don't enjoy running, but you run because it's good for you? <laughs> yeah, some more hands go up, right? Uh, so I, I try to run here and there, uh, especially when things are chasing me a little faster. Um, thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. But I remember uh, as a, a younger man, I was doing the school with Youth with a Mission over in Maui. I remember this one time we were out and and it's just like this perfect day and I'm out running on the beach. And I, and I love, it's great running on the beach. I mean, it's hard, right? You get a better workout, it's because it's harder. Um, but there's just something magical about your, your feet in the sand and you're running. And in my head, I have this picture of myself as like one of those really muscly lifeguards running um, with like arms bigger than my head, you know, and just like tan and, and, and buff and running. And a friend of mine snapped a picture of me that one day as I was running on the beach. And as I was going through photos um, a while ago, I stumbled on it. I'm like, yeah, I don't look anything like the picture in my head. I'm like this like pasty white 19 year old skinny kid, you know? Um, but in my head, that, that was uh, it. And uh, that actually probably doesn't really tie into the message except for this. In this book, we are looking at one of the most famous runners in history. And he's, he's famous not for running on the beach, but for literally like running to the shore and getting on a boat to go 2,200 miles away from where God had called him. He's famous for running from God. And I'm sure at some point in our life, many of us in the room have had a season or a moment or a decision where we have actually run from God. And when I talk about running from God, I'm not talking about like packing your bags necessarily and getting on a boat and sailing somewhere. But what I'm talking about is resisting what we know to be his will for in our, life, in our lives, or even just resisting him. For some of you, maybe that looks like you were brought up in a, uh, in a household where faith was a major part, and you grew up, and at some point, you made a decision. And for many people, they make a decision not because they wake up one day and they don't believe it anymore, but literally because uh, they make a choice of how they want to live their lives, and all of a sudden, their choice doesn't line up with what they know to be true of, of God's intention revealed in Scripture, and all of a sudden, something has to give, and what gives is kind of, I don't know if I believe this anymore. And for some of you, maybe you're coming back after a season or a number of years where you've kind of been stiff-arming God. You kind of wandered away. Perhaps for some of you, you struggled with, with belief to begin with, and you're back, and we're so glad that you're back, that you're taking steps and moving toward God. For others, um, it really looks more like you just, when you're quiet or when you take time to pray, there's this one issue or there's this, this thing that your conscience keeps bothering you about or the Holy Spirit keeps speaking to you about, and um, you're just trying to drown it out. And so if it's in the car, uh, you turn up the music, um, you, you have lots of distractions to try to distract you from the thing that you know uh, you feel like God is calling you toward. And so Jonah, God calls him, an Old Testament prophet was called to deliver messages that God would give to, most of the time, to powerful people. And Jonah gets a particularly tough assignment. He has to go deliver a message from God, a warning from God to this, um, to this people group in Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire. And these are wicked, brutal people that don't share his worldview of the one true God, the God who created the universe 
And so they worship idols, and he's called to go take a message of warning, actually to give them a chance to turn or repent and come back and, uh, and, and receive reprieve from the judgment that they're, they're faced with. And he's like, uh-uh, I'm not going there. And so he goes down to the shore in Joppa on the, uh, on the coast of Israel there. And literally to escape the thing God's calling him to do, he gets on a boat and he doesn't just go a little ways away. He gets on a boat and goes 2,200 miles. He's going to go 2,200 miles to uh, Tarshish, which is on the coast of Spain. It's the furthest the coastal routes went, um, the furthest he could go away from God away from what God had told him to do. And you know, one thing that we that stuck out in the scripture is this, that those who run from God often run in risky directions. Perhaps you've seen that in your life, or maybe you see that in the life of someone you love, that when they, when they decided to run from the thing God was, God was trying to press on them for, they ran into a, a relationship. Perhaps that those who are wise in their life um, were warning them against. Be careful in that, right? Or maybe, maybe you ran into a, a habit or you ran into a whole bunch of credit card debt or you ran into a self-destructive lifestyle. Oftentimes when we run from God, we think we're going to run to safe places, but we do just the opposite and we go to the riskiest places. And inevitably, eventually, life or circumstances catch up to us. And we left off last week just as Jonah hits the wall where he couldn't run anymore. And, and it's interesting because this book is written in almost like a four-act play, and in, in, in it's like a, a satire almost, kind of modern day. Think of like SNL or something. This is, it would be actually kind of comedic because everything's turned on its head. The people who are supposed to be pagans wind up repenting and turning to God. The prophet who's supposed to be listening to God winds up not listening to him and going the other way. And so there's all sorts of lessons to be taught. But where we left Jonah, he's on this downward spiral that ends up creating chaos in the lives of those around him. And many times when we go the direction God's not calling us to go, many times others are affected first, even before we are, and more significantly. Some of you feel that because that's happening in, in family or extended family right now. And so we see Jonah. He's in the, in the belly of the ship. He goes down below deck and he falls sound asleep as the chaos of the storm breaks out above him. And one of the things that we discovered in chapter one is this, that when you run, you're prone to denial. You're often the last time, person to acknowledge the chaos that's being created in your life because of choices or decisions. You're, you're also prone to distraction. We find great ways to distract ourselves, right? He says, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to go somewhere where I won't constantly be, remem be reminded of the God of Israel. I'm going to go to the shores of Tarshish. Maybe it was like Ibiza back then. There's some great beach raves. I'm going to go there, get, get lost in the party scene, and not think about that anymore. Distraction. And so oftentimes, either through habits or um, just mindless social media, we distract ourselves. There's all kinds of things we pack into our lives to distract us. And ultimately, those that run for God land often in a place of depression. We're the downward spiral where we're actually the thing we're running from was the thing we needed the most, and we find ourselves in a place of despair. 
And last week we saw where Jonah is awakened by the captain to the reality of the situation that he's in. And the first step in turning around and moving back toward God and getting our lives back on track is opening our eyes to what's really going on, bringing to surface the reality of what's happening. And so we're going to pick up on the very last verse of Jonah chapter 1 where we left off last week. And here's what it says, Jonah 1:17. It says this, Now the Lord provided... A Coast Guard helicopter. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Remember, they give him the heave-ho after he's at the depths of despair. He, he's not ready to turn back to God, he's, he, but he's ready to end it all. And so they, he says, you got to throw me over. They throw him overboard. He's sinking down. In verse 17, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights in the belly of the beast. And the Hebrew at this point probably isn't super um, specific as to what this great fish was. And so perhaps it was a whale, perhaps it was some sort of fearsome sea creature. In fact, some scientists who were trying to like figure out a natural explanation for this think that maybe this might have been like a great, a giant great white shark. Have you ever seen those huge Great whites that like grow to these, yeah, because great whites have been known to like swallow things whole and their metabolism is slower. But, but here's the point. If you're trying to like come up with a natural explanation for it, you're kind of like, I think, going off in the wrong direction here. Because I think it's so interesting that people actually look at this, um, look at this account and look at the book of Jonah and kind of say, the Bible can't be true because that obviously couldn't have happened. When it's actually, that's kind of the point. Thomas Jefferson, in fact, he, he, he went through, he created his own version of the Bible where he went through and he cut out everything that was miraculous to come up with sort of a plausible, natural, it was a lot smaller. <laughs> his version of the Bible was a lot smaller, right? Because Jesus actually, and here's why I take this so seriously. I think if you grant the premise that there's a God who created a universe so vast we can't, we can't even comprehend it. If you grant that premise... It's not unreasonable at all to assume the God who created the laws of the universe, when he wants to, can step in and bend them and change them. Right? That's the definition of a miracle. I'm going to tell you at the very end something I truly believe was a, a miracle that happened in my life. And many of you, I know, have stories of some time where you can't explain this and you, you know that God stepped in and did something outside of explanation and he did something, whether it was a circumstance that he placed in your, your path and just at the very right time you were going to leave your house and you left, you know, three minutes later for some reason and there was a big wreck or rock slide on the road sometimes and you're like, hmm, that's weird coincidence, right? Some of you have those kinds of things or, or something, uh, someone that you know is healed medically and it's like we don't have an explanation for it. We believe in a God who steps in. In fact, that's kind of the whole point. And why I take this seriously is because Jesus took it seriously. Jesus talked about Jonah as a real person who lived, and he talked about this account we find in the book of Jonah, and he called it a miracle, a great sign, in fact. So the point isn't coming up with a natural explanation. The point is what happened is completely unnatural because he compares it to what was going to happen when he dies and is in a grave for three days and rises again. That doesn't happen naturally, does it? It's by definition a miracle. It's by definition a miracle. And so 
as we as we approach this story and pardon the bad pun if you still you just can't swallow the tail please pay attention to the point cuz even if you think somehow this is just some giant parable pay attention to what god is trying to communicate to us through this and so we find Jonah in the belly of the whale. And it's interesting also that people point at this story to try to uh, discredit the Bible. And yet this is one of the most well-known metaphors in literature that traces back to here. The belly of the beast. Someone being in a circumstance that they can't get themselves out of. Anybody watch Pinocchio when you were a kid? I mean, over and over, this metaphor has been used in the darkness, unable to escape in the belly of the whale. And while Jonah is in the belly of the whale, he actually has a lot of time to think and pray. Go figure, right? <laughs> he has some time to think and pray. And actually what's interesting is he writes a song, a psalm, and we don't know if like, I mean, he's got some time, so maybe he's humming it to himself as he's in the belly of the whale. I don't know. Maybe he gets out and he writes it, records his actual prayers from in the belly of the whale. But he writes a, a song, kind of like our worship songs, and it was a familiar, to them, a familiar structure for how you would write a song. Kind of like we have songs, you know, and you listen to the radio, and there's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, cool little guitar solo, right? And you kind of know where the song's going. Same way for them. And so it's going to be a song written in five stanzas with sort of this refrain or this like five verses and this sort of... Uh, bridge to punch it home, to bring it home, right? And there's this theme of going down and being brought back up. And it all ties together in the original language. It's really cool. And I'll highlight a few little things because uh, it doesn't come quite across quite the same way in the English. But from Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord. And you know, this is when lots of us pray who perhaps haven't prayed in a long time. There's a saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. This is why one of the best things you can do in, in just bringing Jesus into the conversation with your friends and family is uh, when somebody's going through a hard time, ask them, can I pray for you? Because I found almost without fail, people are like, well, yeah, pray for me. Even if they don't really believe, buy into it all. It's like, yeah, pray for me. At some level, we all know that can't hurt anything. And perhaps, perhaps there's a God who hears and listens, right? And for many, this is when you pray for the first time in a long time. When we have very few options left and our future seems out of control. When we've been swallowed by our circumstances. Maybe sitting in the backseat of a police car going, oh no, what did I do? Maybe finding out, like, seeing, finding ourselves single and pregnant and going, how am I going to navigate this? Maybe sitting in a driveway afraid of what we have to tell our spouses. Buried in a pile of debt. We don't know how we're going to get out of when we're caught, when we're cornered, when we're broke, when we're busted, when we're broken. And in that point, from inside a world that oftentimes we have created... We pray, knowing that if there's a God there, he actually has every right to ignore us. And it says, from inside the belly of the whale, inside the circumstance that Jonah actually created as far as, um, you know, running away from God. 
And it's so interesting because this word inside and then the word distress, these are both synonyms in the, in the human language for the womb and for childbirth, which is so interesting. It's like I was placed back in a um, metaphorical womb of the strangest kind to experience, so to speak, a new birth. It's the most interesting picture. And from his distress, he calls out. From his distress, as he's sinking down, he calls out to the Lord. And it says, he answered me. And, it, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. Here's the beautiful thing. God hears the cries of desperate people, even when they have created their own desperate circumstances. You are never too far to look to God, to call out to God. You are never outside of his reach, no matter how far you've gone. There's always grace and forgiveness available to you. The offer of relationship with him is available to you. You are never outside of his reach. I called out to him and he answered me. He listened to my cry. Isn't that beautiful? He goes on. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled all about me and your waves and your breakers swept over me. See, Jonah has a clarity, actually. This wasn't, this wasn't the sailor's fault. Actually, and here's the interesting thing. Sometimes God simply allows us to reap the consequences of our behavior. You, you've learned this. If you, you were a kid, at some point you learned not to touch hot stoves, right? And I bet it didn't take that many times. Your parents said hot. And then you said, hmm, I, I'm going to try it, right? And then you discovered what hot meant. And you quit trying it, didn't you? Because you discovered they actually had your best interests at heart. Now, if we could only get that through our head and listen to our Heavenly Father about a lot of things in our life, we'd be better off, wouldn't we? But too often, we have to try and learn the hard way, don't we? So sometimes we experience just the, the weight of um, choices in our lives. We charged a bunch of stuff on a credit card, and now we're buried trying to dig out of debt. We didn't pay attention to some wise advice, and now we're bearing the responsibility for it. But sometimes, actually especially in seasons where we're turning and we're going in an opposite direction of the thing that God's asking us to do, God actually allows or even creates circumstances in our lives to get our attention. Storms, so to speak, that aren't just natural. And Jonah has this recognition that as, as I turned away from the thing you called me to do and went the other direction, you actually brought the storm into my life. But here's the thing we were reminded of last week that's so powerful. When God pursues you, and sometimes when God allows a storm in your life, God pursues you. God pursues all of us not to pay us back, but to bring us back to him. His heart, the heart of our Father. Jesus says, our gracious Heavenly Father who knows our names, who knows our needs before we even present them to him, but asks us to present them to him because he wants us he wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to have dialogue with us, relationship with us. That Heavenly Father, our perfect Heavenly Father, He pursues us, but not just to pay us back. 
He wants to win us back into relationship, to bring us back to him. One author who wrote a book called uh, Surprised by Grace, uh, and his name's so hard to pronounce, Tulian, I can't pronounce his last name. But here's what he says. God's mercy is massive. The storm tells us that God spares no expense in going after those who run away. The storm isn't punishment. It's an intervention brought on by God's affection rather than his anger. See, the grace of God pursues us. And Jonah has this recognition that as the the currents, these are your waves. Like Proverbs says, the father disciplines the son he loves. And so Jonah then goes on to verse 4. And to understand this, this is cool. So the first couple of verses we've been reading of this, of this song are verse-verse. And in Hebrew, there's a structure that was commonly known, kind of like our verse-course, verse-course, bridge thing, right? And it was A-B-C-B-A. Essentially, it was called a chiasmus, where you have something leading to a center point that everyone listening would go, okay, this is the center point of the song. So the listener listening to it couldn't miss what the main point of the song was. And this actually, this verse is, it's a turning point for Jonah. And here's what he says. I said, I have been banished from your sight. So this is the middle point, the the central point of this song. I said, I have been banished from your sight. And then here's the turning point. But I will look again toward your holy temple. So he has this recognition. I've been banished. Jonah feels in this moment like he has no option of return, like he's headed for Tarshish, and, and there's no, no point in turning back to God. And yet as he's sinking, he has the recognition of my only hope. I cannot change my circumstances. I can't get myself out of this mind, but what I can do is I can turn to God. And when he says that, I'm going to turn and look towards your holy temple. This was the place they gathered to worship where the presence of God came in a special way. And so he's saying, I am looking back to the one true God. I'm looking to you. I'm reaching out to you. I'm going to place my only hope in you. And this word, when it says look again toward, look toward, it's the same word in Hebrew, nabat. And it's the same word used when this really interesting story in the Old Testament in Exodus where people were dying from poisonous snakes. And actually the Lord told Moses, I want you to go and set up a bronze serpent. You've seen this because it's on like medical stuff everywhere. Um, It's a symbol to this day. And it's this interesting, this bronze serpent kind of in the shape of a cross. And uh, he sets it up and the people had to look toward that to find deliverance and live. In fact, Jesus references this very incident, if you'll remember, in a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, where he says this, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Why? So that everybody who looks toward him, who trusts in him, who places their hope in him, will be saved. So this is the turning point. As Jonah says, I'm going to look toward God. I I can't do this on my own. I can't get myself out of the situation. Just like the gospel is you can't just tip the favor, the scales in your favor by just being a good person, by, you know, attending church enough weekends or giving a little bit. No, you can't do that. It's, It's trusting in him fully in the work he did on the cross for your salvation, looking toward him, placing your hope and trust fully in him. 
And Jonah has this recognition, I'm going to look toward God. He's my only hope. And it's the turning point. Now he goes back into the next couple verses of the song that, again, highlight the experience that he has. It says this, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred in, barred me in forever. This is terrifying. He's describing as he's sinking, as he's dying, as he's running out of hope, as he's drowning. I remember being on a boat with my my son a couple of years ago. We went with a a friend in the church up to Alaska, and uh, we were out. Have you ever been on a boat out on the ocean, and you're going pretty fast, and there's big water, and you look out the back and going, if I fell off, this would not go good. In fact, it's kind of terrifying. I'm like holding my son a little tighter. Knowing that, like, especially up there in Alaska, the water's like 50 degrees. You don't last very long. Not to mention we'd, we'd seen, like, there were orcas and stuff, you know? <laughs> it's like, that's kind of scary. And then have anybody, have you ever been swimming in the ocean? And uh, I, I don't know, I love the ocean. Anybody else, you love the ocean? Yeah, I love snorkeling and going out sometimes in really deep water. But the funniest thing, when I go out snorkeling, I, I'm usually kind of, sc- I'm always looking over my shoulder, Anybody else? You're just like, I'm having a blast. This reef is so cool. But I'm always looking for sharks over my shoulder. And then for some weird reason, it doesn't matter who it is, just being next to somebody makes me feel more confident. And so my little girl, she's like this big. I bring her out snorkeling, and all of a sudden, I feel brave. (laughs) Really manly, Tim. (laughs) But he's describing this scene that's like terror. In ancient times, the sea was chaos the place of chaos and turbulence, and he's sinking down. And then, have you ever been swimming and you got seaweed wrapped around you? And it's like the creepiest, freakiest feeling. You're like pulling it off. So that's, that's the scene. He's out of hope. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this, he, he says this, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. You, Lord, you brought me up from the pit. Literally from the pit, this is the same word that they would use as a trap for a lion or for a a, a deadly animal. And he say, I fell into a trap and you brought me out of it. Isn't it true we so often fall into the same traps over and over again in life? The same things snare us up. We fall into it. He's saying, I fell into a trap, and you brought me out. He's a God who hears people that are in hard situations, whose lives are in the pit, so to speak, who find themselves in the belly of the beast, unsure of how this will ever work out. But you, Lord, you did something. I turned to you. I called to you. You, Lord. Now he gets to the last part of this song. This is like the bridge to carry it home, you know? This is like uh, we sang the Reckless Love last, last week, that song about the love of God. A lot of you love that song. And There's this chorus that we sing, uh, the bridge at the end of it. There's no shadow, he won't light up. Mountain, he won't climb up. You know that part? It's like powerful. And uh, it's kind of funny because uh, in my ongoing cat saga, um, 
the first cat that adopted us just showed up on the front door in Winston um, and I, we came home after one Saturday night service and I'm like, don't let my wife or kids see that cat because it was like this like scrawny little thing hanging out and uh, next door, day it was at the back door begging and so um, I'm like, stays outside and then it was on my bed and like, you know, a week or two. <laughs> but its name, uh, we, we thought it was a boy so I can't remember what the kids named it. Um, Mo or something, um, and then uh, we found out it was a girl, and it actually had belonged to one of the neighbors, and then it abandoned them because they got kittens, you know, like cats do. Um, it abandoned them, and it came up, and it, and it landed at our house. But anyway, that cat's name was Shadow, and so every time I hear that song, No Shadow, You Won't Light Up, I think of that, and it's kind of a weird picture in my head, and I hope it won't be in your head. But anyway, um, this is the bridge. This is like the drive it home part. This is the don't miss this part because this is important. Here's, what, here's how he brings us home. He says this, when my life was ebbing away, like he was a dead man in this moment. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. I remembered you, God. I looked to you. I called out to you. And then there's this little interesting thing next. Um, and he says this, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And when it says love, this is the Hebrew word, said. It usually, it carries the idea also of grace or of God's pursuing love for his people of his covenant love, unconditional, his compassionate love for those with, with whom he's in relationship with. And he has this recognition, and I think there's two really interesting things going on. One is that as I turned away from you and put my will and my agenda on the front burner, I walked out of your grace, but I called back to you, and you answered, and you saved me. And I think it's so true that oftentimes when we place something else in the center of our life where only God was meant to be and we run from the thing we think that God's leading us to do because we think, why? We're going to miss out on something good in life, right? So many times this is when people run, like decide to do their moral life, their sex life one way, it's because I think I'm going to miss out on something good in life and what we actually find is meaning is found in the way God created it to be. We think we're going to miss out on something. But here's the thing. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and life in abundance. And you actually find real joy and real fulfillment in the way that God created life to be lived. So at the heart of wisdom is discovering the way that God created the universe and then aligning your life with that. And yet so many times we think, we did a whole series on Ecclesiastes where pursuing success, pursuing things in this life, it's almost like a treadmill. Think, well, I, I could just have that relationship or if I could just make that much money or if I could just do it. And we keep running around thinking we're going to somehow get to the end of the treadmill and we never do. We just keep going around and around and around. And in that, we forfeit. We turn away from the beauty of God's love and grace for us. Now, his love and grace doesn't go away. It's there for us. But we forfeit the benefit of walking in the center of his will for a season, for a period in our life. 
And so I think he has this recognition. But the other thing that I think is going on here, and this is interesting, I, I read this a bunch of times and I never kind of had a little aha moment. Because here's, here's what he goes on to say. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Like God, I said years ago, I would, when I signed up to be a prophet, I said I would serve you wherever you called me. And then you called me and I said, nope, not going to do it. And I turned the other way. But I am coming back. I am going to follow you in this way. Jesus, my life is yours. And yet, here's the cool thing that I see in here. I think there's still a hint in this verse right before that of this inner conflict. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. See, where did God send him to go originally? We're going to discover next week. Don't miss next week. It's a powerful, powerful um, passage when it comes to our attitude about this world around us. Don't miss it. But we're going to discover he's still got a little bit of a beef with God over God's whole plan to go with a message of warning and allow the people of Nineveh to repent. And it's not going to fly very well with him. And I think he's still struggling because he recognizes those who serve worthless idols, who do that? The Ninevites. They forfeit God's gracious covenant love. And he's still wrestling with this and struggling with this in his mind. He is not yet surrendered in the, he's surrendering. Here's the cool thing. In this moment, he has a prayer where he says, okay, God, your way. I am going to do what I said. But he, he doesn't have all his questions answered yet. He doesn't have it all figured out. He still has issues and things he doesn't understand with God. Have you ever read the book of Job? How many of you perhaps identify a little bit with some of Job's questions. I don't get it. This isn't fair. See, Jonah, I think, is struggling with some of that right here. Like, you serious? The people that oppressed us and persecuted us and are hauling our our people off into captivity? Go to them? I, I don't get it, God. Yet I know you're a God of grace and compassion. Your compassion for me, you rescued me. You saved me. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust you. I'm surrendering to you, but I still am struggling with this. I think that's the reality of life. Job, what did he get at the end? Did he get all his questions answered? No. What did God say? Basically, are you God? Job, in your finite mind, you can't understand why the world works the way it works. And there's going to be mysteries that you will never understand in this life. There will be things that you will never have the answer to in this life. Are you going to serve me anyway? Are you going to love me and understand that I am God and you are a created human? That's the challenge. And I think it's so cool because God is okay with the dialogue. You see that both in Job and you see that here in Jonah. He can't run anymore. He needs to surrender to the will of God in his life. But he doesn't have it all figured out yet. He hasn't worked through all his questions. And what I love about this is also he sees this whole prayer. He goes on. He says that salvation comes from the Lord. So it's this prayer of thanksgiving, of trust, of surrender to God and his will. In spite of the fact I still have inner conflict, I don't understand why you offer grace, and yet I know deliverance comes from you. 
and you delivered me. And this is a strange deliverance as I'm in the belly of a whale. But he knew that he knew that he knew in that moment. Somehow the God of the universe had timed it perfectly. So right as he's sinking before he drowns, just whoop. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You wake up, not wake up, you like all of a sudden you're drowning and then all of a sudden you're in a dark confined space going, am I dead? I don't think I'm dead. This is crazy. Wow, I've been swallowed by a huge animal. Only God could do that. I'm still alive. This is God's mercy. He sees me. I'm not really comfortable right now. I'd like to get out of here. It's kind of stinky in here. But God, God cared enough about me. He saved me. He rescued me. I was about to die. I was going down. He stepped in. He knows my name. He heard my prayer. And he offers a prayer of thanksgiving back to God from this place in the belly of the beast. His circumstances haven't changed too much other than the fact that God rescued him, but it's still looking pretty dark in there. Scene two opens. It's dark. But he knows that he knows that he knows that God is with him, that God knows him. I'm sure he grew up singing a psalm all his life of David, Psalm 139. It's a great psalm to read um, on a weekend where, you know, we're celebrating the sanctity of life because you knit me together in my mother's womb. But then he goes on and he says, there's nowhere I can go. Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go down to the depths, there you are. And Jonah has this recognition of God. Even as I'm going down to the depths, you are there with me. You are with me in the struggle. You didn't abandon me. You pursued me to get me back. And I'm going to serve you. I'm going to surrender to you, even if I don't have all my questions answered. And here's how this chapter ends. Verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, if you don't pause to see the satire in this whole, like, upside-down story, here's the funny thing. All throughout the Old Testament, when it speaks of, like, vomiting or spewing, um, it's language in there. Read your Bible. It's great. You should read it. <laughs> but normally, it's, it's in the context of judgment of God saying, hey, to his people, if you go after idols, um, you came into the land, you'll be spewed out of the land. Exile. In this instance, he, <laughs> both the belly of the whale and now being spewed out onto the beach, is actually a sign of God's mercy and a second chance for him. And it's so interesting. Because in chapter 3, we're going to find out that God speaks to Jonah a second time. Gives him a second chance. And guess where God sent him? Nineveh. Nineveh. And this time, Jonah obeys. He surrendered to the will of God. He doesn't have all his questions answers, but he surrenders to the will of God. And Riley, who's part of our, uh, our youth ministry pastoral team, uh, she was speaking a couple weeks ago. And uh, she said this right at the beginning of the year, how going often going into a new year, we set a lot of new things and new goals. But she heard this thing at a conference that old orders are standing orders. That the thing God's called you to, old orders are standing orders. Are you getting to the things that God's already called you to? So many times we're always looking for the new, for the exciting. Are you doing the things you know he's called you to do? 
Are you being faithful? This is what Jonah will be called in to doing, and he's going to be faithful. And, and what we discover next week, he still has a disagreement with God. But Jonah, in chapter 2, and what we just read, he prays what he was capable of praying in the moment. And God hears his prayer and listens to him. And God, in his grace, has patience for us when we ask him, why God? When we don't understand, he actually welcomes the dialogue. And God's grace can take even our rebellion and our running and use it for his purposes. But don't miss this. The best time to surrender to him is now. The best time to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Okay, Lord, I'm going to align my life with what you're saying. Okay, Lord, I'm going to take a hard step. Okay, Lord, I'm going to listen to the good advice of people in my life. I'm going to get the help I need from a counselor or from a group, a trusted group around me, from my small group. I'm going to share what I'm struggling with. It's now. The best time to surrender to the thing he's calling you to is now. I'm going to go ahead and invite Samuel up. And uh, he's going to just play a little bit as we get ready to close here. And as he comes up, I just want to tell you a story. So a number of years ago, um, I've told this story before, so a few of you in the room may recognize it, but it's been a while. Um, A number of years ago, I was serving on a missions team, and we were were, uh, suffering for Jesus. We went to Fiji. And you laugh. That's what I thought, too, when I signed up. Uh, But I got to Fiji, and uh, we were in this town about four or five hours away from the airport, the capital, Suva. And it was gloomy, and it was rainy, and we were kind of stuck in this missions compound, this house. And it was one of the hardest, darkest times of my life. Looking back, I recognize and I realize there was probably a lot of spiritual warfare going on that I didn't understand at the time. All I knew was I was super depressed, super homesick. I didn't want to be there. And I had signed up sort of indefinitely, open-ended ticket. We didn't know if we'd be there, you know, several months or a year or however long. And I get there, and I'm about a couple weeks into it, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm calling back, talking to my, my parents. At the time, it cost a dollar a minute to call them. <laughs> I'm like, I, I can't stay here. I don't want to stay here. My mom and her friend are praying for us and like envisioning, thinking of the story of Jonah. I'm talking to one of my pastor friends. They're trying to encourage me to, to follow God. And, and eventually, I'm just like, I can't take it. I'm done. I'm out of here. I book my open-ended ticket. It was the beginning of the week. I book it for Friday. I'm like, I'm going home. I don't care. I just got to get out of here. I knew I was doing what wasn't right. I knew God wanted me to stay. I just didn't know why. Or it was so confusing, so depressing. And uh, I told our missions team, and everybody was bummed because they knew I was going a direction I wasn't supposed to go. And I was planning to put a brave face on it, but Friday morning comes. We get in the taxi. Taxi cab comes, and my missions leader, who's Fijian, he, he gets in the front seat, and myself and another team member are in the back. And we pull out of the driveway, load, it, load up the taxi, pull out, and uh, start heading towards the airport. It's like a four, four to five-hour drive to Nandi to the airport. And as we're uh, 
as we're pulling out, before we even get out of town, the taxi starts acting a little funny. And I look up, and I, as I clue into what's happening, I'm like, what's going on? And we pull over into a taxi depot, and they're like, oh, the clutch just went out in this taxi. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> that's kind of weird. So we get out of that taxi and jump in a, a nice new model taxi, jump in this other taxi, get back on the road, start heading for the drive for the airport, taxi number two. We're about 30 minutes outside of town. And my missions leader up here find out the driver's a Fijian. He's a uh, believer as well. And so they're talking. I can't understand him. He tells me later, uh, they're talking. He's telling them, yeah, this guy's going AWOL. <laughs> he's supposed to stay. He's like, oh, I'm going home. I don't know. My team member's over here on the other side, and she's just like praying and cheerfully singing worship songs. I'm like, would you be quiet? That's not helping anything. And I'm over here in my heart. If you've ever been in a situation where you, you're heading in a direction you know you're not supposed to go, my heart was just beating, so just pounding in my chest. And about 30 to 40 minutes outside of town on a smooth paved highway in taxi number two, all of a sudden... I feel a giant kukunk. I was like, what in the world was that? And we pull over real quick and pop the hood. And I've never before heard of this before or since. But on this smooth highway where the strut attaches to the frame of the car, it was sheared off. Just sheared off. I have no explanation for that other than maybe an angel's sword. And it was a moment where I knew that I knew that I knew. God just broke taxi number two, and I had a choice to make. And my, my missions leader looked over at me and said, I'll get you another taxi if you want, but I'm starting to get worried somebody's going to get hurt. <laughs> And in that moment, I said, no. Turn the car around. Let's go back. And actually, I was so shaken up. I, I, I think we transferred into a new car and then headed back to town. I surrendered. I said, okay, God. You know, it was interesting in that moment. Nothing changed immediately. It was still really, really hard. I was still depressed. I didn't know why God had me there. But, but here's what I knew. God did have me there. And here's what I knew. Even in my place of despair and darkness in the belly of the beast, he saw me, he knew me, he cared for me, and for whatever reason and his purposes, he knew that he had to stop me from leaving. I'm looking back. That's one of my moments that I'm like, you were there, God. You had a plan. And I'm praying for some of you that you have a moment like that where you know that you know, where God does a work in your heart, that you know even in the midst of the circumstances you're facing, he's with you, he cares for you, he sees you. For some, that means surrendering an area, and you don't have all your questions answered, and you have some real protests to God right now. But it means going, okay, God, I don't get it. I don't know why, but I'm going to change this direction. I'm going to surrender to you. 
And some of you might have a hard choice to make. You might have to have some awkward conversations. You might have to break up with somebody. I don't know. But God knows. For some, there's a long process of healing and recovery and getting the right people in your life to help you get there. But surrender is the initial step of going, okay, God, I'm going to start taking the steps that I know you're calling me to take in this moment and saying yes to you. Don't you bow your heads, close your eyes. Some of you need to pray a prayer kind of like Jonah prayed. It may not be quite so elegant, but maybe it needs to start with the words, okay, God, I surrender. I thank you for, for even in the midst of this dark time, for some of you it's saying thank you that you've confirmed that you're here with us right now, with me. Help us walk forward. Help me walk forward through this season. Why don't you do that right now? Pray a prayer out to the Lord. A prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of surrender. And then I'll close this in just a moment. Lord, and I just pray that you're working in hearts and lives and maybe rerouting some choices in a direction that's honoring to you. Pray that you would do what only you can do is show up in the lives of each person here in such a way that they have that recognition that you are with them. That even though things may not get easy right away or, or for a long while, Lord, that you are with them, that you see them, that you care for them, that you're a God who pursues not to pay back but to bring back, Lord. Pray your blessing over them and a profound sense of your Holy Spirit in their lives, Lord. Your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.